Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and today I'm joined by Mark Wall. How's it going, Mark? Yeah, I'm okay. You free me there. I, was, uh, <laughs> I know, I'm mixing up the order. I don't want you to feel left out. And uh, my other compadre is, as always, Andy Malbin. How's it going, dude? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, mate. Excellent. So today we're going to look at the trial of the Chicago 7. It's the story of seven or eight people, but we'll come back to that, who were arrested in 1968 surrounding the riots in Chicago that uh, took place due to the Vietnam War. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. Andy, this was your choice. Uh, yeah, I basically picked it because I wanted to watch it and I haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> I like political film and I like a good courtroom drama. So I was kind of expecting to really, really like it. And I did like it, but maybe not as much as I thought I was going to. Okay. Did you have high expectations, Mark, going in? It's funny because I'm pretty much coming from the exact opposite angle, really. Um, I was pretty sceptical because, in general, I would say politics and courtroom dramas is not necessarily my first port of call for movies mm-hmm. i mean most of the courtroom dramas i've seen are quite like but yeah i, I didn't really <laughs> it's it's not one that was on my watch list i'll put it that way i, I don't think yeah. i would have particularly got to it at all um were it not for this but i'm actually quite grateful that we're doing this because uh i enjoyed it quite a bit actually we might end up giving the same rating. I went in quite, expect, quite possibly, expected yeah. a 10 and came down and you came <laughs> in expected a 3 and came up. I just I just didn't think it would be my kind of thing, but I did think it was quite well done, really. Obviously, I've, I've seen a little bit of Sorkin's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen The West Wing and neither does it particularly appeal, but maybe I should take the same you know, view now where actually if I tried it, I probably would like it. More of a bit of West but, Wing. Yeah, yeah my significant other's a huge West Wing fan. I haven't watched very much myself, but uh, I, what I catch over her shoulder tends to be pretty good. I really like this, uh, I think, but it, for me, it just met my expectations. I think I expected it to be good, and it was good. I think it's worth noting that it has an extensive and pretty incredible cast, all in all. 
Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, is it Yaya Abdul Mateen the second, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon Levitt, Frank Langella, uh, and of course Michael Keaton. I think it's uh, full of super strong performances as well. Like Mark Ryland for me was just superb start to finish as the uh, the like defense attorney. And yes, Keaton. I mean, he's only in what two scenes, but he's rad, right? It's su- such a good performance. Yeah, yeah. He sort of steals those scenes. Yeah, yeah there's there's loads of him though. Like Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, not sure I've ever seen him in a kind of straight role before. No, he was definitely the surprise for me, and I really enjoyed him in it. It's kind of a role I'd expect him to be good at, like a like a Jewish hippie. It's not a massive stretch for him, but he is exceptionally good in it. Yeah. Anyone in the in the cast stood out to you, Mark? Um, Ray Lance was the standout. Absolutely, pretty much agree with what you guys just said. Keaton absolutely owns his five minutes. Gets like a couple of laugh out loud moments for me. He's um, just got that gravitas, hasn't he? Yeah, he's he's superb. But the surprise for me, yes, agreed with Sasha Baron Cohen. He was really good. And another guy who, to be honest, everything else I've seen him in annoys the hell out of me, uh, which is Eddie Redmayne. And I thought he was pretty palatable. It's hardly the, the highest of uh, praise. But, um, the highest of praises. I, I thought Redmayne was good in it, but I think I'm probably, I'm not a fan in as such. I'm going to go and see films because he's in it. No. But I've certainly, I certainly have a, a, it would sound like a much higher tolerance for him than you, than you. I think a lot of the casting was like relatively safe. Not that there's anything kind of wrong with that, but Eddie Redmayne as a kind of white collar, more kind of intellectual leader. It's just a role that kind of suited him. Yeah, I think some things might be hampered by the fact that these are real people. Um, It doesn't do that classic real movie thing where it shows the actors next to their, like, real-life counterparts. I assume because they haven't, like, worried too much about specific likeness. No. But nonetheless, I wonder if the fact that it is real people dictated some of their decisions on casting or, as you say, whether they are just, these are safe names for safe roles. Gordon Levitt's a um, almost kind of an interesting one for me because I thought when I first saw him and saw that he was going to be the lead prosecutor, I thought that that was a kind of risky pick because I've I've never seen Gordon Levitt in a film where he's not likable, but he's sort of the discerning voice on the side of the bad guys. So it's uh, yeah. so it actually sort of fits into Levitt's wheelhouse relatively easily. Yeah, no, agreed. I think uh, Frank Langella had the most kind of thankless task, really. <laughs> There's no redeeming factors, really, is there, with him? He's no, just a bit of a dick, like, all round. Yeah, and pretty much. And he plays it well it, enough, yeah, but it, it's difficult to get too excited about his performance, really. He was, he was fine. Yeah, I think you just need him there as that sort of villain to bounce off. He is maintaining those sort of old worldy views. But I also think it's suggested and not quite followed through on that he is perhaps suffering from like dementia. And I think that's why he can't get people's names right. There's a bit where uh, Mark Rylance's character says, like, I want a geriatric doctor in the stands to sort of look, you know, to to keep an eye on this guy. And the thread's not really picked up again, but that was my read on it that, uh, yeah, that Judge Hoffman was, was, essentially becoming senile 
I wasn't fit to judge. I didn't pick up on that at all. If that's true, it makes more sense because I, I think some of the bits that showed up his like sort of stupidity as opposed to just evil beliefs. Some of those I found slightly odd, like the amount of time at the start of the court case that he went through, the fact that him and one of the defendants had the same name and to like point out that they weren't yeah. related. Like I say, I don't like the judge is just supposed to represent a like broken American legal system that's trying to stop people having voices. And that makes sense. But the, some of the things that, like I say, are more him just showing stupidity just just feels, I don't know, it doesn't fit the narrative of the film. Like he just comes across as an idiot in some bit. And that's not because mm. of prejudice or that's just just because they showed him as an idiot. And that's why I, I took that idiocy more for like senility than than idiocy. It was just... Mm. On that side of things, with um, is it Keaton who does the evidence that they basically don't have the jury for? And yeah. Like with that, I didn't understand, and this is just my limited understanding of like trials and whatnot and American politics, I guess, but I didn't understand how that was possible. Because even Gordon Levitt, who previously is already showing to be a bit, you know, he gets behind the Black Panther guy, for example, mm-hmm. in an earlier yeah. scene. So he's already shown to be a kind of fair play guy. But even he's just like proper, just like, nah, that that's that's not that's not happening. Is that just simply because that ruins his case or is there like something else that was missing there? So I think like, that because he used to be the general secretary, like was attorney the general, general. attorney general, sorry. They were basically questioning whether it's legal for him to give evidence, whether the things that he divulges as part of evidence, like he can legally say, you, you, I think, can't, you can't give away inner workings of government, like despite the fact that you're not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Richard Schultz, is kind of stuck between the two worlds of he wants to do his job and he wants to do it well, and he's clearly good at it. But as the case goes on, sort of starts to shift his viewpoint a little bit and I think sees sees that there are some bad practices going on. Because they, they show him at the start, don't they? And he says... They ask him like his opinion of these seven people. I've forgotten the line that he uses, but but anyway, he doesn't have a positive opinion of them. And I'm not sure that his opinion of them changes. It's just that he's supposed to be a kind of he's like, still he, got a conscience. Yeah, well, I think he just wants the legal system to play out fairly. Like they still deserve a fair yeah. trial, whether he thinks they're guilty or not. Yeah. And they're obviously not being given a fair trial. So I think with the Chicago 7, I think they make up a good demographic of sort of a lot of different prejudices in America. I was going to say at that time, but still now. We had like quite a diverse mix of people, both from their kind of nationalities or religions, but also their backgrounds. So I think, as you said earlier, Eddie Redmayne's character, Tom Hayden, and Alex Sharp, who played Rennie Davis, are kind of the intellectual college demonstrators. And then we've got Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman and Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin, who were the like just hippie demonstrators. And then John Carroll Lynch as David Dellinger, who was like the American patriot, but through his lens meant the right to demonstrate and the right, I think really what American patriotism should stand for, but inevitably doesn't. I've got a couple of criticisms, but I think the film leans quite heavily on that 
um, patriotic American story. I think occasionally it's a bit overdone. I don't want this to sound either like I'm siding with uh, siding with the government against like Vietnam protesters, but <laughs> there's no shades of grey in there. Like the story is very black and white, like right and wrong. They show at one point Sasha Baron Cohen's character like showing a room full of people how to make Molotov cocktails. Yeah. They don't they don't go anywhere with that story or even kind of touch on it at all. The seven are shown as kind of whiter than white. It's not that I don't want them to be the heroes of the piece. They absolutely should be. But just from a like storytelling perspective, a little bit of discerning voice in there, I think, would have been interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Do they do they have any moments where they're... I guess in, within the group, they sort of challenge each other yeah, in their exactly. individual collectives towards the demonstration and, and why they're doing it and they're doing it for... No, they never get painted as the villains, do they, ultimately? I think I found it really enjoyable, but also pretty terrifying in how easily it was that they could bat aside the arguments that the defending case made. Every time there was kind of a new little bit of evidence that would support them, the defense didn't even need like counter evidence. They just decided it wasn't going to be submitted to the jury or like scaring the jury, although it's never sort of proven or touched on again, suggested that the prosecution are the ones who are like trying to pin fear tactics on the Black Panthers in order to sway the jury. It's just full of like underhand tactics that there appear to be absolutely no consequences for. It comes up at the end, doesn't it, with title card saying that 78% of his peers or what have you judged him as being sort of unfit to judge at that time. But he served as a judge for another 10 years after that. Wow. Mm, that is crazy i mean i don't because i i was watching this obviously it's based on a true story but i mean how how close to the actual truth do you think it is it's incredibly accurate to to the real story yeah very 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 little of it has changed it leads me on to one of my other criticisms as well which is like an impossible criticism but (laughs) some bits of it almost seem almost seem borderline far-fetched i think one of the best scenes of it is when like bobby seal is um like taken into court like bound and gagged like it's a like <clears throat> horrific little moment in the film it's, like it's shown as like quite a short moment but apparently he was bound and gagged for like six days of the trial oh wow i didn't like, know leading, that leading up to his um to his acquittal uh, not acquittal sorry mistrial this is why i mean it's a bad criticism Bits of it almost feel like a pantomime, the good guys against the bad guys, and um, and like I say, like they they are based in truth, like they're real events. So that, that that's incredibly harsh as a criticism. It's just kind of how I felt whilst I was watching it. I kind of see where you're coming from because I, I also thought that if it wasn't based real trial, if this was a fictional film about a trial, I think you'd be thinking like some of this just doesn't this is unbelievable, like some of the things that are happening and and all of it to happen in this one trial. It almost feels like every sort of uh, bad trial trope in in a film has all been rammed into this one film. The fact that it's as accurate as you say it is, is surprising, but I guess for me that actually gives it even more weight. Yeah. 
I mean, that's it. That's why I was asking how close it was. And if it is apparently quite accurate, then the stuff you were saying before, which I agree with in that it's sort of, there's not a lot of gray there. It is very black and white, but if that was the case, then what was he supposed to do? Like make it grayer for, to make it more intriguing. I think, I think he was just obviously trying to tell the story. And I think that's the thing. I think you can, you could tell that story as it is. The story might be an incredibly like accurate portrayal, but I can't believe that the portrayal of the people on trial is a hundred percent accurate because they were just all portrayed as fairly like squeaky clean, and like no activist, yeah. no activist leader is. I don't think like it's kind of part of the job. So, so I guess like I, I wouldn't expect it to change change real events from uh, like as part of the narrative, but maybe a little bit more rounded characters. I think the film is well paced in that it keeps giving you further detail and sort of progressive twists on the on the night of the riot. And you don't get that information all at once. It be kind of becomes relevant as it becomes relevant to the case. And it all sort of crescendos in a big sort of beating in the park where the police really sort of brutalize these people. And it's intercut with some of the sort of original footage black and white i thought that was pretty effective yeah i like the the way the story was told in terms of like you say the narrative it's not like you see the story and then you see the court case i like the kind of the interchange it breaks it up a bit yeah and i I also like the kind of real world footage being used it's quite sort of subtly done as well it's not like thrust down your down your throat no no i would agree that overall it is just quite pacey i think it was over two hours, I think. It didn't feel like a long movie to me at all. And for something which basically is just constant dialogue, I mean, that's obviously his strength. I thought it was interesting that he started off with kind of that classic, almost comedy trope of like switching from one scene to another and continuing the sentence from where it left off in a completely different context. I thought it yeah. felt like, I really liked the opening. I thought it yeah, felt no, like it was... It was... Good. It was like the opening to like a like a high octane like heist film. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> like the opening opening to Ocean's Fifty Three or whatever they're up to. There's a bit as well where um, the first time Joseph Gordon-Levitt is sort of introduced as a character, and he goes to meet John Mitchell, who I think is he just become the new Attorney General. Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. That bit I thought was shot almost like a sort of Edgar Wright or Cohen's brother film where it's really sharp editing, quite like snappy dialogue back and forth. And if it weren't for the sort of seriousness of what was being said, I could see that being how a sort of comedy scene would be shot. Yeah. It's all got a lot of energy. It's quite driven in general. There's no let up at all. And I think he... He commands it quite well because all the bits that are supposed to be the big moments, I think he lands really well. Like the punch, the air moments, he absolutely yeah. nails. The one-liners that just uh, just yeah. make them sort of win the intellectual argument, if not the not the legal one. There's a few good bits like that. Like um, yeah, the moment where is it uh, Hoffman, Sasha Baron Cohen's character, where he says like I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. That's yeah. a great little throwaway line. That feels like the iconic moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was absolutely the line I was going to uh, <laughs> was going to quote as well. 
but he he was great anyway. I mean, I, I know you said before he was like the uh, hippie representation. I mean, he was the smartest guy there. It seemed to me. He has he has like a growth through the film. Yeah, like he has an appreciation for kind of Eddie Redmayne's way of doing things that kind of differ from his own. <laughs> I'm not sure whether he feels that at the start, whether it eventually dawns on him or whether it just eventually kind of comes out. But I think Matt Matt Rylance as well, like his character actually develops over it. He starts off with the kind of yeah de- denial that a political trial exists, and then. Like quickly realizes that he's in a political trial, <laughs> and just yeah, like that's exactly yeah, what it is, getting more and more exasperated with the just like broken American system. He's so I good. Think I was just to say again, yeah, he is super. Yeah, he is. He's excellent throughout. I think Sash Baron Cohen stands out a little bit because it's slightly less expected of him. He's still playing a funny man, like it's not something entirely outside of his comfort zone, but. I was just impressed with him and him and Jeremy Strong, who played his uh, his hippie mate Jerry Rubin. Yeah, he's good as well. Uh, I just thought what constant source of like humor and good humor as well. Like, it, I don't think it was cruel to sort of that type of person. It, it wasn't laughing at them. Uh, I think the humor was because they were funny people. I can't say I'm surprised that Sasha Baron Cohen was good in it, <laughs> although he's done a lot of you know. Some very famous comedy characters. There's a strong, like, acting game running through them. Like, even to some of the, like, stupider, like, Ali G stuff. Or, like, I don't think it's a shock that he's a good yeah. actor. I think he's shown he's a good actor before. Like, it's just that this time he's turned his hand to a straighter role. Yeah. I guess it comes out in the same year as uh, the latest Borat film. And uh, quite different for him. Of course it is, but like they touch on they touch on some themes that are similar. They come at it from very very different yeah. angles, but it's not like uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's not like Borat isn't uh, doesn't have an anti-government message to it. It is coming from a very left left side of uh, the political sphere, isn't it? The extreme left. Okay, well then, can I ask Andy, what's your rating for the film? I thought it was I thought it was really good. I know I've sort of been a little bit critical. I'd say I have super high expectations for it. And I think for the most part it hit them. And I think occasionally it was a little bit idealistic. So I'm gonna give it seven out of ten. It, it was still really good. Like it's not a heavy criticism of it. I I, I just yeah. kind of went into it hoping that it would be a ten out of ten. <laughs> sure. Mark, where do you land on it? And he predicted it at the start, and I think we're pretty much there. Yeah, I, I really didn't think I would like it at all. And um, it's between a seven and an eight for me, actually. I am going to go for a seven. Good man. I think I'll give it an eight. I think I was a similar place to you, Mark, that it was between a sort of seven and an eight, but I lean into the positive aspects, I think. The reason I'd give this an eight is that I I think I'd be pre- prepared to watch this again relatively soon like i think the actual watching experience was uh entertaining it wasn't just sort of informative and gripping it was fun to watch as well so an eight for me yeah i agree i would watch it again i think yeah i would as well so should we move on then to our album which again was your choice andy and it is land animal by bent knee 
us why you went for this one. I went for this one. I listened to it maybe half of the album a few days before I shouted it out, so it was brand new to me. I follow quite a lot of music YouTubers, and the guitarist Ben Levin pops up um, on a couple of channels that I follow. And yeah, just something about it seemed... I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to love it or hate it. I hadn't decided off half an album. So something about it made me think it would be an interesting choice. Yeah. What were your thoughts, Mark? Go on, you go. Well, first listen, really couldn't stand it. <laughs> God, this is going to be a disaster. And then I left it for a couple of days and I was on some offline work during the office day and uh, slammed it on. I was like, well, what the hell was I thinking? This is, this is incredible. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, I was playing I, it really loud in my uh, five pound earphones. And I, um, it has to be played. At, I realized that after a bit that it's an album that has to be played at full volume. It, it definitely does. It makes such a such a big difference. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, it didn't quite maintain that incredible level for me, but I am favourable on it overall. I was I was mm. kind of hoping that you'd hate it, uh, you know, just for a bit of uh, <laughs> just for um, just for a bit of a mixed opinion because I thought you might think it was like pretentious and yeah, just full of like wanky musicianship. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I definitely have criticisms but which i'm sure we'll get to but uh what did you think will i think we probably landed in a similar place you and i mark but from very different angles my first listen i thought this is brilliant like i'm absolutely digging it and i think both with re-listens and as the album goes on like i think it gets weaker throughout the album uh, i think it's sort of top heavy for me um but those first so a handful of songs, I think, are really, really cool. Again, we touched on it in the previous podcast, but I love a bit of dissonance, and I love it when it resolves, and you get it in spades in here. I'd agree that the second half of the album is slightly weaker than the first. I'm just having a look. I like most songs on the first half of the album, and the second half I probably like two out of sort of five. I didn't really see it as a huge drop-off. I think I don't, it's broad sound, I don't need enough to listen to it just for that sound. So when I think the songs a bit later on move into a more general music territory a little bit, and I think lose some of that kind of interest as the album goes through. I don't really know what you're calling their like general sound, to be honest. I'll I'll have a go at summing it up. (laughs) I think it's a very difficult thing to nail. And they come close a couple of times, but I think they're sort of going for this epic sweeping rock with orchestral elements. And that is, again, very, very tricky to, to do that, I think. I mean, immediately, as soon as you put like distorted guitars with strings and orchestration and whatnot... And obviously a powerful vocal. I think nine times out of ten, it's terrible. There's exceptions. I mean, like, I would say parts of Dogman Star by Suede um, nail that kind of thing. 
And you could argue that they're not always going for that, and I don't think they always are. But I think the thing you're talking about, Will, they mostly are trying to do that kind of thing. In the second half, a little bit less so. I think it gets a little bit more, I agree, basic. Like there's the tune, I think it's track seven or eight, Belly Side Up. It's very much sure. a straight okay. kind of pop song. I like that song quite a lot. It's less. It's a less musically interesting song. Like it's more accessible on first listen. But I think it's one of the few songs that has a bit of like vocal variety in it. Like I think most of them are just kind of like big epic-y vocals. Plus that like vocal run at the start, the chorus is uh, killer. Yeah, Sorry. I just I, yeah, I just um, I think I'd have preferred more of the beginning. In all honesty, hmm. okay. I think it's the kind of music that can border on something like Evanescence if you're not careful, which it doesn't quite ever hit that, which I'm very grateful for. But I, I think the no. uh, the singer is is the absolute strength of the band yeah, by a great. mile. The older I get, the more I just like vocalists with character. She's also like got a really good range and everything, and but. Yeah, she just really goes for it. And that could be seen as quite obnoxious at times. But why not, to be honest? There's loads nice. of people just doing standard singing. She, like, really goes for it. She's got mad, like, wailing bits. She's got a ton of vibrato, mm. which... I was just going to say that, like, the ending to um, the first track, uh, Terror Bird, the, like, the wailing yeah. vocal on the end end of that is... Fantastic. Uh, uh, it's just beasty. Yeah, she's... She's fantastic. I've got no idea what she's on about at any point. (laughs) (laughs) The lyrics, you know, it's that classic thing where you pick out a word or a line here and there and it doesn't help, but it doesn't particularly matter. I, whatever she's singing, she's making me believe it. (laughs) (laughs) What were your, um, like standout track or tracks? I think mine was probably the, the opening track, Terror Bird. Uh, as I say, I preferred the front end of the album, and I just think Terror Bird is a great opener. I would second Terror Bird. I also like Holy Ghost a lot, and the title track, Land yeah. Animal. The opening kind of segment, I guess, well, is repeated throughout, but that kind of that's the time where they really go for that orchestral kind of doom, and it's like they get a choir involved and everything. And it's just it is just epic, but it's it's actually also really just dark, the right side yeah and then they do a cool thing where like the second half there's kind of a gradual build where it's far more nicey nice that bit doesn't entirely work for me but then it kicks back into the intro again for the outro and it's it really works for me overall my favorite track like i think the standout one's holy ghost for me mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's got that <laughs> that math rock kind of thing going on, but it somehow mm-hmm. actually makes a decent song out of it. It's got that riff over the start that, like you say, is kind of almost like a math rock riff that goes through the through the verses. I really like how the vocals kind of, it doesn't sit super comfortably on top of the riff. Like it kind of, they move at different times and stuff like that. Yeah. And then you've got that almost like orchestra hit uh, chorus where it's like super staccato and and then second time the chorus comes through you get like a little tease at the end where there's a slightly more 80s power pop 
thing. <laughs> and then third chorus, I think like the payoff of their like full, full power pop chorus is is superb. Like super works for me. Yeah, it's definitely one of my highlight songs, like no question. I think it works where the second song actually doesn't work as well for me. Hole. It reminds me a little bit of Two Weeks by Grizzly Bear, which most people love and I I don't. I think it's one of their weaker songs. And it's got that kind of, again, that staccato kind of string stuff at the start. It's just, I don't know, it, it doesn't quite work for me. It nearly pulls it back with the second half where, again, she just goes into super cool wailing time and it switches it up a bit. And the second half of the song I quite like, but the first half, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it didn't quite work for me. No, I liked Hole plenty. It wasn't one of my, like, favourite tracks, I guess. Um, Terror Bird, and I think you're right about Holy Ghost is really rad. But I, I didn't have a big problem with Hole, I... Um... So I pretty much enjoyed all of the first first half of the album. I listened to this album a lot because the first couple of um, first couple of listens, I wasn't completely sold on it. Like it's quite like it's weirdly dense, even though there's quite a lot of space in it. There's quite a lot of bits that do have that kind of like quite staccato rhythmical thing. So there's mm. there's lots of space in the sound, but there's lots of density in terms of what's going on. I don't think it's a yeah easy listen it took me a few to like a couple of times through to get into it and i think there are a lot of tracks that are borderline formulaic as well which is a weird thing to say when it's it touches on so many different genres and is occasionally a bit avant-garde but a, a huge amount of tracks finish with that like big kind of shoegaze outro like say that kind of jumpy rhythmical guitar riffs and stuff kind of happen in a lot of tracks. Like there is a little bit of a formula behind it, even though there's like huge, like I say, kind of genre differences between tracks. Yeah. It does fall back quite often on just like, we'll just hit some big distorted chords. Yeah. Um, which is, which is fine. I do think the thing that, that lifts it, as I've said, is, is the vocalist in general. I think without her, I don't think I would have really got much out of it. It's not that the music is bad. It's it's pretty good at times, but I think a lot of it does throw in kind of, you know, weird math bits and whatnot, which without her, I don't think they do much for me. I think she sort of ties it together, really. I do get plenty from it musically. A bit of math rock. My only problem is with it is that it... it very rarely actually forms a song like as a as a sound i don't mind math rock at all so when it is folded into a more complete song that i think mm-hmm. as you say her vocals are the, are the tie to everything else then i'm into that i kind of agree with you like the most important thing to me is songwriting basically um like i want some catchy riffs and i want some good you know chorus melodies and I basically want good pop. Like, I I want that, but I want it to be interesting. I, I think if you strip away a lot of yeah. the nonsense out of the songs, then I think they're generally pretty good songs. Like, I think the last track's kind of an example of that. It's not one of my favourites on the album, but it is just a completely sort of stripped away track. And I think, like I say, it's not one of my favourites, but it works as a track. Like it doesn't have any of the math rock elements or 
it doesn't no. it doesn't have big vocals either. It's the one track really that's quite that's something yeah. like quite quite within herself. But I think the songwriting's good enough to kind of carry carry the album without all of that extra extra stuff. Absolutely more. I'll just say that in general the production is obviously very well produced i suppose i actually think it's slightly overproduced for me for my personal taste um okay yeah some of the, like some of the drums and stuff i wasn't too sure like a lot of them sounded kind of programmed i, I don't know there are definitely some that's the pro- case or not some programmed drums on there like i'm sure the start of holy ghost has has programmed drums yeah i, w- I would like it almost to be a little bit rawer i think Sure, but the, the production is nice. I mean, it sounds it sounds very good and glossy, and you can hear everything. And the guitars sound decent. That's the thing. I, I guess when I was saying before, I think she ties it together. I just don't really think anyone else stands out to me as like, you know, they're putting in some incredible work. And that that doesn't have to be the case, really. But you know, there's. So I think that the band is, although it is a band, obviously. I think it was the guitarist and the singer. It was their kind of project first. I think they do a lot of this songwriting. I've heard Ben Levin play on plenty of other stuff before as well, and he is a pretty <laughs> phenomenal guitarist. And I was sort of surprised yeah. listening to it. There's almost nothing... You can take this as a compliment or an insult, really. Like, there's nothing showy at all in any of... It doesn't showcase that at all. And you can mm. kind of argue that that's showing good restraint and not not using it for the sake of using it, or you can argue that it's not utilising his skills, but, like, he is a phenomenal mm-hmm. guitarist. But I think you're right. I think there's something to be said for somebody who chooses not to do everything they can just because they can, but to do what... provide what a song needs. It's a counterpoint to the um, little Tybee guitarist for me, where... That's a good comparison. He's almost forcing the technical flourishes into every song. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, this guy's taking the opposite approach. I almost... Yeah, I I would have liked to... I mean, I think there's one kind of 10-second guitar break. I think it's a guitar. It might be a keyboard. It's like this super cool fuzz sound. Mm. Um, But, yeah, he really... Fair play to him. He doesn't look for the spotlight at all does he he just proper plays for the song and i respect that but yeah i I almost particularly hearing that he is a really good player i would have liked a little bit more you know just guitar solos or just a bit of variation it is all kind of hinging on on the singer and the vocals you know vocal melodies hard line to walk though i think isn't it how Mm. much of your how much of your talent to sort of show off on a track by track basis. But I think your point with little Tybee was a good one sort of by the third or fourth track, you kind of get the idea of, right. I know you can do that now. You don't have to keep showing me. Yeah. Yeah. One, um, not that interesting point, but they picked the worst possible like way to pick a name. The the name works, but I love, uh, I love when bands decide to make names by combining their own names together. Yeah. It's just a terrible convention and almost never works. <laughs> the guitarist's uh, called Ben and the singer's called Courtney. Oh, that... oh nice. <laughs> Extra point. <laughs> Do you think he's thought of the name first and found somebody called Courtney? <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> they all met at... Um, uh, it's at Berkeley, the like famous like music college 
in America. And I think like there are definitely bits of it which sound like a Berkeley band, which were exactly the things I expected Mark to hate about it. <laughs> <laughs> By that point, I mean like they are presumably all pretty phenomenal musicians. Like I think anybody who gets into Berkeley is a phenomenal musician yeah. that kind of goes with the territory so i think like in terms of musicianship whether they always showcase it or not they're probably a pretty pretty talented bunch mm-hmm. so i keep referring to her as the singer and the vocalist i think her name's courtney swain is that right andy yep that's right yeah courtney swain so i haven't listened to any yet but i'm quite intrigued because she seems to have like a kind of dream pop solo project as well which sounds completely Ooh. at odds with bent knee um, yeah. like you don't listen to her sing and think you know she's her primary thing would be dream pop but then again <laughs> i suppose the, the last track they, it kind of hints at that i suppose so I'm, I'm definitely gonna check that out at some point well i've listened to ben levin a couple of ben levin's like solo stuff as well and it is absolute nonsense just like noise nonsense <laughs> um so you can see where the amalgamation i guess has come from have you listened to much more of Ben Neek? It looks like they've got a few albums. Yeah, I think this is their third out of four albums. I I, I picked this one just because it's the album that's called most... name, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the album <laughs> that's got the like most listens to, essentially. So by that right. by that basis, without doing any research, I just presumed it was their best album. That's what I'd do. Uh, but I'm definitely going to listen to listen to some other stuff. Should we do some scores on the doors? Give our rate some scores on the doors this time i'm gonna to go to mark first i don't know why but everything seems to fall between two numbers and it's exactly the same as the movie for me it's between a seven <laughs> and an eight i am gonna go seven to be honest i think yeah there's three or four standouts and the rest is is just kind of decent enough but yeah I, it was a good pick i, I enjoyed it cool. yeah andy what's your big scores on the doors um i'm sort of between two as well but so last week i gave an eight and kind of regretted it because you both threw out nines i was like well i love that album why did i not uh i don't not be brave that's recorded forever now as well i know and um yeah you don't have to remind me christ i'm gonna go into the edit can't change that opinion and go into the edit and snap a nine in there (laughs) um so i'm gonna i'm gonna give this a nine because i i just kept going back to it like I'd say the first couple of listens, it took me a bit to get into it, but once I did, I wasn't listening to it just because I like needed to listen to it for the podcast. I was listening to it because I got that thing where you just become a bit obsessed with an album and just constantly keep mm. going back. I just counted yeah, through. Cool. Like, like I really like six out of ten tracks, and I don't dislike any of the others. From nine, cool, nine cool. Out of 10. nice. I mean, like you, I don't, I don't strongly dislike anything on the album, um, but I'm more in Mark's ballpark, I think. And I too will give it a seven. I think there's enough in there to gain my interest. I don't think repeat listen is going to make this a classic for me, but I kind of like the style and I like what I heard and I am uh, interested in going to see what else they've done. Okay. So let's move on to our top five for the week. Again, Andy, your choice. Tell us what your top five is. Uh, yeah, we've done a lot of talking about film scores, I think, recently. So, went for top five film soundtracks. Right, you kick us off with your number five. 
yeah, my number five is the film that made me think of doing this as a list, and it's crept crept in at number five, which is American Graffiti. Um, it is all like early rock and roll, like Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly. You get occasional bit of uh, Beach Boys. I actually think it's a really good film as well, but George Lucas's best film. Um, <laughs> I, I've not seen it or heard it, so it's. Um, it's basically a film where a group of teenagers are finishing, I guess it would be high school, and it's their last like few days in the town as a like friendship group before they all go away. It's, it's like an end of an era film, basically. Like it's quite a nostalgic, right. nostalgic film. And not all of the films in my top five do this, but I think the soundtrack really nails it to a time period. Like it feels like a soundtrack to that part of their life. Like it gives me sort of nostalgia from for a time that I never knew. If sure. that makes sense. Like <laughs> it's sort of yeah. the soundtrack is a big part of that, I think. Like it sort of it puts you into that into that world. Well you convinced me to I mean if it's better than The Phantom Menace, then I, I obviously need to be watching this uh this movie <laughs> it was a tad tad tongue-in-cheek that but yeah no I, I should watch i should watch american graffiti it sounds it sounds quite appealing yeah it's from good. what you've it's said good, good watch okay so for my number five i'm gonna pick boogie nights both because it has it just has like a, a rad soundtrack by like people like marvin gay and the commodores uh, Electric Light Orchestra and the Beach Boys, and again, is quite sort of um, representative of the time frame that it's set in. And there are a lot of films set sort of in the seventies, eighties that have those representative soundtracks. But this one starts with Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley trying to sing their hit from the from the film "Feel the Heat." That was enough to sway it into the top five. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a fair shout. <laughs> It is also a fantastic film, and um, just the way that sometimes certain tracks will remind you of certain bits of films. Boogie Nights is a film I don't mind being reminded of. Yeah, nice. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Okay, for number five, I'm going to go for the one which was mentioned last week, and I said that I wouldn't use because it got mentioned last week, but I'm okay. going to mention it anyway, which is the uh, the Wicker Man. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's absolutely unique and intrinsic to the movie working. Just a collection of weird folk songs, some of which are actually quite nice. I really like the Willow song. It's sung by Britt Eklund's character in the film, as is a lot of the music, which also makes it work quite well. Yeah. You have the privilege of uh, Christopher Lee singing at the piano, which is a beautiful <laughs> thing. And it just all adds to the atmosphere of the movie. It's just really kind of I think odd. it works, yeah, with how at odds it is with the atmosphere and f- what you're seeing on screen is at odds with these often quite pretty English folk songs. And I think that's that's just part of the whole vibe of the film, isn't it? These seemingly innocent and puerile people are in fact, hiding a sort of sinister underbelly. Uh, I think, as you say, I think the soundtrack really like, adds to that and 
at the start of the film puts you at an odd sense of ease and then as mm-hmm. as what happens on screen gets more kind of horrific the juxtaposition between that and the and the folky tunes becomes more notable and effective yeah exactly and a lot of it plays into the movie again like the the maypole stuff where they're all the kids are sort of singing this you know on the surface just upbeat nursery rhyme but it's actually if you listen to what they're saying it's uh it's quite disturbing <laughs> oh, good choice though yeah agreed number four andy so my number four is train spotting oh good choice it, it's I'm going to make loads of the same points as I made for number five, to be honest, because it's another one that just sets you in that world. It's weird because there's a lot of, um, like, sort of horrendous drug abuse scenes um, that are are pretty unsettling. But actually the kind of the mid, what, mid-90s, mid to late-90s kind of indie club scene. Like, I remember watching that film and, uh, like, that looks like a pretty cool world to be be involved in <laughs> yeah when he's fishing pills out of his own shit looks like. <laughs> well yeah that's what i mean it's full of it's full of harrowing drug abuse scenes as well i just think like the soundtrack of like there's loads of like iggy pop and lou reed um loads of brit pop um it, pulp blur uh, new pulp. order primal scream yeah there's there's also a bit of like that night is ambient of like brian eno and left field Second week in a row that I'm going to throw out a uh, Noel Gallagher story. <laughs> Save one for every week. Yeah, that apparently he was approached by Train Spotting to have uh, some Oasis tracks on the playlist uh, within the soundtrack. Sorry, and um, he turned it down because he thought it was a film about trains. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Go on, Will. What's your uh, What's your for? Okay, so my number four is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Not only is it made up of some sort of Bowie tracks, but actually the bit that I really like about it is, I may butcher the pronunciation, Sue George? Yeah, I think that's right. He does these uh, really great, I think they're Spanish language covers of Bowie songs. He's Brazilian, Re- isn't he? Ah, so Portuguese. Ones, oh, yeah, yeah, points, yeah. But that really like stripped back single guitar and vo- vocal version of these songs and his kind of little cracked up voice, I think is great. And I, again, it adds that such a light atmosphere to the film where nothing is kind of that serious and everything is quite fun. In the touching moments as well, I think it, it works super well. It really works, yeah. Like and that I just... kind of stripped back stripped back like say like brazilian folk version of uh, bowie songs yeah and i think because they are the cover versions they really stand out as part of the soundtrack you know there could have been an option just to use said bowie songs but because he's done this kind of little collection of covers it really sounds unique for the life aquatic it was my number four as well <laughs> oh. so uh... <laughs> I pretty much just echo everything you've said. I think actually the use of his, when it actually kicks in with the original versions, it's it's absolutely perfect in that movie as well. Mm. Like the Boy, kicking of Mike on Mars on the on the ship at night is beautiful. Obviously, the ending walk out to Queen Bitch is amazing. The only thing I would say about that one, and this will come in a few times, I guess, is that yeah, I would class that as a top soundtrack, absolutely. But mm. it still does have 
a score in it as well, like it by does. Mark Mothersborough. Um, yeah. Which also actually has a ton of awesome moments in that as well. Like when they're beaming in the music and he's doing his little dance on the deck. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a score rather than, you know, a soundtrack yeah. song. But the two combine really well. Yeah, I didn't try and specifically ignore films that have like incidental music. It's just that I felt like the I wanted to include things where the soundtrack was the predominant thing. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I will just mention I'm not going to change it. That is my four as well. But I'll give a shout out to Gross Point Blank, the uh, John Cusack film. Nice. Just a lot of fun. Violent femmes, a load of I mean, kind of scar may, and maybe don't say too much about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My number three Oops. choice is uh, Gross Point Blank. <laughs> Mark, what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> no, I mean it, it's just it's been a long time since I've seen the film, but the soundtrack always stood out. It's just got like a load of top songs, like just unarguably top songs and they were used really well within the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I really tossed up which to put in between Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity. There's so many similarities between them as films that it just felt redundant to put both of them in. Yeah, Joe Strummer does the incidental music in certainly for, uh, uh, for Gross Point Blank and there's loads of clash. That's cool. There's loads of clash on the, um, on the soundtrack as well. Like there's loads mm-hmm. of reasons for the music to be like diegetic. Like it's just background music that the characters are listening to. I think like the choice of songs that they pick are usually in quite an obvious way sometimes kind of saying what the main character is thinking or maybe like unable to say or like I think it's a cleverer use of music. Mm-hmm. I say literally the kind of the titles of songs. And I like bits as well, like in the do you remember when the like seven eleven blows up that used to be yeah. Used to be his home. The cashier's listening to like, like Ace of Spades on his uh, headphones, but it's also playing as the soundtrack to the uh, soundtrack to the explosion. So you sort of yeah. so you sort of swap between their like tinny little headphone version and the the massive soundtrack version. Always he... an enjoyable little trick. Yeah, I do wonder how much John Cusack had to do with those because I think. It's not just those two with him. I think he's had a couple of others which have notable soundtracks. Mm. He did some like early ones with Cameron Crowe. I think Singles is one. You get the impression that he's a big music nerd, and I don't know whether that's just because of his high fidelity, high fidelity character. Mm-hmm. I do feel like he probably maybe had some input. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I just think it's interesting that he tends to have big soundtracks. Yeah, I could easily believe that they're just bands that he loves. Well, then I guess I'll do my number three, which is High Fidelity. It's a really cool soundtrack. It helps that the film is about music and is basically about him being a snob about music for the most part and running a music shop. So there's loads of excuses to have music constantly. Just looking at the two soundtracks, well, High Fidelity is a lot longer in terms of just pure content. And I think that goes to the fact that... uh, as I said, High Fidelity is a film about a record shop. Soundtracks, um, are, soundtracks are difficult, though, when you look up the soundtrack because they'll use a huge amount of music that wasn't in the film. It's just like yeah. it's like a soundtrack to the film. It sort of influences the the feel of the film or whatever. Well, yeah, that's fair. 
they don't seem to have the great rendition of Let's Get It On that's played at the end of the film, doesn't appear on the soundtrack, which is a bit of a disappointment, I must say. Nonetheless, great soundtrack, number three. Do you know, it's the first time that John Cusack had heard Jack Black uh, sing properly. <laughs> so his reaction, yeah, is, his reaction is just a genuine reaction. Yeah. <laughs> I just like that whole joke that he spends the entire time making, having this like awful band that never does anything or goes anywhere and can't write a single song. And then right at the end, they're just, they're pretty rad. They're <laughs> a good band. We were called Mona Lisa Overdrive. I can't remember any of the other names, but they're all good. They're all good gear. Uh, so yeah, that's my number three. Yeah, good pick. I love High Fidelity. Um, number three, Will, you'll be impressed with this one. Dipping into the Marvel pool. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, it's Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. Couldn't really separate them. I don't think there's any need to. They're very kind of similar soundtracks. And I think both are great. I think it's quite rare for a film of that nature to have a predominantly a soundtrack. It does have a score as well. But mm-hmm. again, the thing you said with The Life Aquatic or whatever, where the songs kind of accent the mem- memorable moments, that's very much the case in Guardians. And um, yeah, I, I just think there's some absolutely top songs on there. I listen to it in the car quite a lot. What's They're kind there? of important to the plot as well and and him having those songs that his mother gave them before she died has exactly. that kind of emotional weight to it as well. It's lucky that they're all bangers, isn't it? I think if my mum made me a tape, it'd just be <laughs> wet, wet, wet and simply red. I'd have chucked it in a bin. Well, sorry, sorry mum. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Even in the second movie, it's got like a great scene where Kurt Russell just monologues about the song Brandy. Yeah. You're a fine girl. It's magnificent because it's Kurt Russell. <laughs> Kurt Russell is, um, is super cool in those films. Yeah. I might as well come out and say that that was my number two as well, so we could just clear yeah, that okay. one off, off the bar. But I also went for one and two for the same reasons. I don't think it's really worth separating the two volumes from a soundtrack perspective. They both come at it from trying to do the same thing, just with a different block of tracks. As someone who's not seen either film, can you uh, shout me out what's on the soundtrack? Yeah. Southern Nights, Glen Campbell. Ooh. Which is uh, incredible. I fucking yeah. love that song. You've got Mr. Blue Sky, ELO, Father and Son by Cat Stevens, uh, The Chain, Fleetwood Mac, Bringing On Home to Me, Sam Cooke, Don't Stop Me Now, Queen. No, right, I'm going to struggle to argue that... Uh, Surrender, Cheap it? Trick. That's a, that's a tune. Struggle to argue that it's not, uh, not full of bangers. Oh, flashlight by Parliament. It's just got some absolute, like, absolute bangers on it. I think it's one of those, if you're not a fan of the films, I still think it's a really great collection of songs. But without the film, that's that's all it is. It's just a like anybody could put this playlist together of just the <laughs> really good songs. But I do think the film and the kind of emotional tie to the soundtrack um, gives it a bit of extra heft. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Good, good pick then, boys. So my number two is Pulp Fiction, which I'm going to guess maybe somebody else has in their list as well. Yeah, it's in my, well, it's my number two as well. I had it in my list, but for the very reason that I thought it would be picked, I moved into my honourables. Tarantino's just the master, isn't he, of that kind of setting the tone with 
with the soundtrack. I, I think yeah. as well, like talking about soundtracks putting you in a place and a particular like moment in time. There's mm-hmm. like a there's like almost like a timelessness, I think, to a Tarantino soundtrack. I, I could have easily put like Kill Bill and one and two was my yeah was the one that I was weighing up between. But there's always a Tarantino going in there. Like I mean, Pulp Fiction's I presume set in modern day. And yet there's like there's a ton of that like 60s surf um mm. in there. Like he sort of mashes as well, like big hits with with kind of lesser known tracks. Apparently he writes scenes with with a particular soundtrack in mind. And sometimes that'll just be a song that he's heard that isn't particularly big and he'll want to use that. And occasionally they just won't be able to get the get the song. And so they'll just try and find something that hits that kind of like similar vibe or yeah i think like one good example of just like hitting a vibe is um girl you'll be a woman soon um, yeah like the neil diamond song and it's covered by uh, urge overkill Kill. yeah and it's like it's a pretty ropey cover to be honest yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think like like it's like it just sort of speeds up and slows down throughout it's a bit of a mess but like the bit of a mess cover just fits the yeah uh, fits the scene so perfectly fits the aesthetic yeah i bet we were speculating as to whether uh john cusack was a kind of muso i feel really confident to say that um quentin tarantino absolutely is as you say like his definitely picks across all of his films almost are uh, pretty iconic i mean the, the kicking of jungle boogie right at the start yeah. of the film is it uh, just gets you straight in the mood um the, yeah the diner scene like it, it just i don't know why you don't feel it's out of i know it's a 60s diner but i don't know why it doesn't feel out of place that they're like swing dancing to a bit of chuck berry that's what i mean about it having like a timeless quality it sort of it, it does fit with the world but the world just doesn't isn't quite an accurate like portrayal of the real world i think tarantino often has these sort of exaggerated realities i like neon life where everything is just boosted up so the violence is really high and you know people's wit is really high and always has a always have a quick answer yeah and as i say i think the soundtrack adds to that and, and the slight surrealness of parts where things just take a bit of a left turn and don't seem to quite fit but i think it all plays into that like hyper realism where things are almost viewed through a rose-tinted filter but for a time that's still happening yeah i'm really pleased now just looking at the soundtrack it's also full of just clips of the film as well which i really like it when they put that in the soundtrack yeah got pumpkin and honey bunny royale with cheese zed's dead baby yeah i mean it's my number two as well i think it's his best soundtrack it's i've had it on CD for years, and I still occasionally go back to it. I don't really have much to add to what Andy said. I will say it's pretty awesome having Bruce Willis sing along briefly to uh, Flowers on the Wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had his short-lived music career, didn't he, old Bruce? Yeah, there you go. But I think in Pulp Fiction, he nails it. There's, there's a nice variety on the soundtrack, but it all kind of fits together quite well. The two surf tunes that kind of start and end the movie like Dick Dale and I'm not sure what the other one is. They're just proper badass and super cool. And again, the the timing of them is superb. What I will say is for his later ones, 
a little kind of bugbear of mine. I mean, Pulp Fiction, his early ones, they're all just songs, basically. But in his later movies, he starts kind of selecting old bits of film score from random films and including them as part of the score slash soundtrack. And I don't really like that. I feel that's um, tantamount to stealing, really, you know. Yeah, I kind of get that, yeah. I think it's less likely people will recognise a piece of score than a pop tune. And therefore, like, your average cinema goer is not going to know that that isn't something created for the film. Yeah, agreed, but it just feels cheap to me. You know, I also think it slightly devalues that person's work on the original film, to be honest. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't really like it. He he has, he did get Morricone in to actually score some original stuff for The Hateful Eight. He did. Yeah. So that was a a nice, a nice thing, I suppose, having yeah. a ton of his music, <laughs> the, the Kill Bills and stuff, and probably Django as well. But yeah, Pulp Fiction is ace. I Absolutely no complaints about that one. Well, my number two's already been done. So my number two was Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, to your number one now, Andy. So my number one is Baby Driver. Nice. Which I think is essentially a playlist with sort of car chase scenes over the top of it. Like, I really like it as a film, but it's uh, it's all style and zero substance. The reason it's, sure. again, like the reason it's number one, like it is a great soundtrack. Over the chase scenes and stuff, it's got... Um, like lots of sort of high energy rock, like Brighton Rock by Queen. You've got Hocus Pocus by Focus, mm-hmm. which is just fun to say. <laughs> and then it's got loads of... Um, Radar Love by Golden Earring, yeah. ultimate driving tune. And then it's got like loads of like soul and, and you know, jazz and blues and stuff. But I think it's the use of music as well in it that's so good. Like, I, I know that was a throwaway comment at the start, but there's some truth in that. Like, it's clearly written around the music. You know, there's, like, Brighton Rock by Queen. The song's played its in, in its entirety. Like, it's, I don't know, five minutes long. So he has to make a five-minute car chase scene because it's fitting the length of the song. And, like, there's it's a, a, a two-and-a-half-minute two guitar solo in that. Like, it's about 50% guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, like... <laughs> He does it all the time where, like, full tracks are used, like the John Spencer track at the start where um, is it over the, like, opening credits where it's showing Baby, uh, like, walking with his is. headphones on. Again, like, the whole the whole track is used for it. it. It's just, it's more important to the film than any other soundtrack that I can think of. And they give him an in-universe reason for it as well. Mm. Like you say, with his, his constant wearing his headphones and like his soundtrack is really important to him so at least that gives it a a grounding for why there are just yeah full pop songs being played <laughs> it, there's just a really good scene where um yeah it's the bit where john ham like snaps his uh snaps his headphone he's like what are you listening to and then like pulls his headphone away it goes like egyptian reggae <laughs> it really made me laugh like he's confused whether that's like a is that a song genre is that oh it just made me chuckle but anyway yeah great soundtrack really like on square dance as well it's a tune is that brew back yeah yeah big, cool. big day brew back yeah lad 
yeah, it's it's a good pick. I've only ever seen Baby Driver once, but the music definitely stood out 100%. And his, his soundtracks in general are, are pretty good. Yeah. For sure. So for my number one, it's clear that we've been fishing from the same well. And also, it was a video game soundtrack that I completely forgot, I think, to add to the list. So to rectify that, my movie soundtrack is Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah, Again, I thought, thought that might be your choice. Edgar Wright. Great choice. I'm a big, a big comics boy, so I'm always going to try and get something of reference in. It's a combination of like, existing tracks and then a few things written for the bands who are obviously in the film, Sex bob um, So my oh, favourite, Crash, the... <laughs> uh, Crash and the Boys with their songs, I'm So Sad, So Very, Very Sad and we hate you, please die, I think are, uh, are great stuff. Great. But there's actually the song Black Sheep by Metric, which is the song that his sort of ex-girlfriend's band is supposed to play. I just think it's a genuinely really cool song. Um, and I thought it was made just for the film and to find out that it's actually just a real song was very cool. And there's a character called Ramona, and it's got I Heard Ramona Sing. And even the, like, probably 30-second little acoustic song that Scott plays to Ramona has loads of cool little chord changes in it. It's just, yeah, what it's a just great, really... What a great film as well. Great film, great music. You're right. Like, I've, I've put the soundtrack on before. It's just a quality soundtrack. Yeah, really I like it stuff. as well. I like how he never, with the, with the Frank Black song, he never actually goes into the chorus where it clearly states the name. It's just like a shout-out to... Uh, if you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't, yeah. Complete respect to that. Chicken Parmesan isn't vegan? God, I love that film. <laughs> Doesn't have the Zelda jingle as well at one point. Oh, yeah. I think right at the beginning it starts with like um, the doodly from, uh, yeah, like uh, fairy fountains. Yeah, gotta love that. That's that great line where uh, with young Neil and I think Knives says like, what do you play? And he goes, oh, it's a tough decision. I mean... Zelda, Tetris. <laughs> Marco, what's your number one, buddy? My number one is Lost in Translation. Ooh, made by honourable mentions. Ooh. It's not exactly a soundtrack of bangers, but um, I think it works incredibly well within the film, and I happen to like most of the music. I mean, a lot of it is shoegazy. It's obviously a bit of my bloody Valentine and Kevin Shields from that band. And then you've got a couple of more kind of French electronic style things going on, which is pretty yeah. cool. Like I adore Lost in Kyoto by Air, which kind of happens towards the end of the film. I just think that's magnificent. And I just think it really fits the the atmosphere and vibe of the film. Yeah. There's kind of a lot of kind of insomnia and disorientation. And, you know, that is obviously tied quite well in with, with shoegaze, really. It's kind of quite dreamlike. And um, cross my mind this one, but I think that's a really good pick. I think it's, it's ultimately, it's a film I've always liked anyway, and I watched it again a few months back, and I still really like it. it I think it holds up to repeat viewings really well. And, yeah, I do, I do think the soundtrack plays a very large part in that. Yeah, agreed. So it's a it's a really good soundtrack. I think 
if I some of the other ones that I've picked, the like genre of soundtrack is a little closer to my taste, which is the <clears> reason that I've gone for them. But I think in terms of like quality of soundtrack and how it um runs alongside the film, it's uh it's a great choice. Yeah, absolutely. I've got Sweet. a few few honourable mentions. Roll them out. Well, we've we've covered quite a few of them, but got the graduate on there. Paul Simon oh, yeah. and Simon and Garfunkel tracks, and of course, yeah. Paul Simon wrote uh, Mrs. Robinson for it. Yeah, oh, good shout. A few others. Five hundred days of summer. Dazed and confused. Um, mm-hmm. Zach and Mary make a porno. I only put on there because of the scene where they play uh, "Hey" by the Pixies in full. Is- nice. The only one I had in my list that we haven't really touched on at all is this is Spinal Tap. Again, mainly because I think the original music from that is at times like actually genuinely good. I really like it when they go through their like previous incarnations of them as a band. Agreed. You have things like Give Me Some Money. They're like sort of yeah. surf Beatles tune. Yeah. The only other one I had was um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I sort of regret not putting in, to be honest. I didn't realise that Gillian Welsh was like she's listed as a executive producer and I think she had quite a lot to do with the soundtrack. Because a lot of them that. a lot of them are like modern well, I say modern. They're basically like re recorded versions of like traditional folk and blues and yeah. bluegrass and stuff like that. I, I re- anything with a bit of gospel in as well draws me in. Cool soundtrack. Yeah. The Big Lebowski's got a good soundtrack as well. I think the Coens might be another one of those that maybe not as consistently as some of the others we've spoken about tonight, but sometimes just really nail a soundtrack for their films. Yeah, agreed. There were a couple that I sort of considered and didn't include because I didn't really feel the sound. there was enough of the soundtrack. I mean, Labyrinth, I considered. Sure. Ah. Um and then, I mean, a couple of Beatles albums are pretty much just from Beatles films, as far as I can understand. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Yellow Supreme Help was a me. film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. You could always go that way, that sort of 60s music slash film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I definitely got a couple from that I need to check out. Absolutely. 